As we pick up today in Ezra chapter 6, then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetar Bozanai and his associates did with all diligence what the Darius king had ordered. And the elders of the Jew built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And the this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned elders, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all of Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as written in the book of Moses. All right, return to the book of instructions. If you don't know what to do, Get out your Bible and find out what the Bible says you're supposed to do. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together with all of them who were clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who returned from exile and by everyone also who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So in other words, there is holiness. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. To me, this is one of the great stories of restoration. These ancient kings came and destroyed the house of God, burned it to the ground, did not even leave the foundations there. And now they come and they pay to rebuild it and they pay for the sacrifices to be offered there. If God can do that for them, God can do that for you. God will always restore twofold what has been destroyed in our lives. Ezra chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Ezra, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitib, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Panias, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. All right, so Ezra traced his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. Now, this was very, very important to a Jew. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he asked, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. So let's begin to make a note of God's hand. So first of all, God's hand gives favor. God's hand gives favor. And there he went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which is the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. 
And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So, all right, we have a five-month trip. You didn't go anywhere quickly in those days. For the good hand of the Lord was upon him. All right, so now we see a couple of things about God's hand. So let's start making a list. We start seeing God's hand. Let's go up here and make a list. God's hand gives favor. God's hand is a good hand. God's hand is not upon us for evil, it's for good. God's hand gave traveling mercy. So that's a good way to pray for people. When they get ready to go on a trip, Lord, let your hand be upon them. That's a great way to pray for people. Why was God's hand upon him? Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach it. All right? So here is a leader. God's hand. Why was God's hand on his life? Number one, he studied the word. Number two, he lived the word. And number three, he taught the word. Now, now young men and young women who have a call of God in your life, that, that's the ministry. That's leadership. Okay? God's hand is upon your life. Why? Three reasons. You study the word. Second reason, you live the word. Third reason, you teach the word. You don't teach the latest little slogan. You don't teach the latest little political, you know, monologue that's going around the world that you saw on Facebook. You study the word. You live the word. You teach the word. There's a great sermon for young pastors. This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. All right, so... We have a man who set his heart to study the Word of God, and he became learned in it. You know, forgive me, people recognize. People can see this. One of the things my grandfather taught me, and he was a very wise pastor all of his life. Grandpa taught me, he said, David, people who sit in the pews are not stupid. They're very clever people. He said, don't ever think that people are stupid. And one of the applications he taught me about is he said, you know, David, people can tell when a pastor is not prepared. People can tell when a pastor doesn't understand his material. People can tell when a pastor just copied a sermon from someplace because there's no depth of understanding. There's no depth of learning behind that sermon. He said, people, people can tell. And you know what I've learned in my short life? Grandpa was right. People can see that there's a person learned in the matters of the Word of God. Not just shallow, not shallow. Again, this is great material for leaders, connect group leaders, great material for you. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace. Now, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go with you to Jerusalem may go. All right, so free will. Free will is necessary to do the will of God. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according 
to the law of your God, which is in your hand. All right, so <laughs> this is pretty cool. So Ezra carried the word. <laughs> I can remember a young pastor one time making fun of me because I always had a Bible. Oh, and I taught him to always carry a Bible. And he thought that was the funniest thing, and he mocked me for it. And he was one of our pastors. He's no longer around. He's long gone. You see, you have to, you have to be known by something. And the, here is a man who was known to be learned in the Word of God. Here was a man of God who carried God's Word in his hand. He, he, always had a, he always had the parchments with him. He always had the Law of Moses with him. But now notice the basis of inquiry according to the law of your God. He said, I don't want to hear about the politics and I don't want to hear about the, the economy. I want to hear about how is the land doing according to the word. So the basis of the inquiry is not politics, okay? And it's not economics. It's from the word. And also to carry the silver and gold the king and his counselors have freely offered, every offering is given by God freely, to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. <laughs> That's a whole study in itself. With all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the free will offering of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. All right, so we have vows. And we have the basis of a vow, willingly. Have you ever noticed that when we do vows at church, I like you to go home and think about it for a week and then come back and make the vows next week? See, some people get caught up in the excitement and then they make a promise that they're not going to keep. It's better to make a vow willingly. With this money, then you shall buy with all diligent, buy bulls, rams, lambs, and their grain offerings and drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. All right, so we have designated offerings. So you, you, with this money, he said, you don't use this money for other things. This money is for offerings. This money is to do this with, all right? Whatever seems good to you and your brothers, do so with the rest of the silver and gold. You may do according to the will of God. So, all right, when the need is met, okay, it still has to meet God's will. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide out of the king's treasury. Now here, here's Artaxerxes continuing to pay for the reconstruction and the rebuilding of God's temple. And I, Artaxerxes, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Now, always remember, beyond the river, that's where the idols come from. Whatever Ezra the priest and the scribe and the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Now, notice, there is a promise, and then there are limits. Now, 
and then there are limits. So there are limitations. Listen, I'm going to take care of this, but I do put a few limits on you. You can't go crazy. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath shall be against the realm, the king, and his sons. All right, so this guy wanted God's favor. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or the other servants of God's house. This is where, in Western mentality, this is where tax-free for churches comes from. Tax-free property, etc., for churches comes from. And in the Philippines, uh, priests and pastors are tax-free. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. He said, hey, you, you need to teach the law of God. Whoever will not obey the law of your God, the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of my God was upon me, and I gathered the leading men from Jerusalem to go up with me. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. And, you know, this is going to be a really hard passage not to, to preach my way through because, forgive me, <laughs> we have been preaching our way through it. So we will try to be disciplined and just devotionally read this and not bring out all the Greek and not bring out everything that there is to bring out. But as we do devotions together, let me encourage you to get out a notebook, get your Bible out, and let's study together in Jesus' name. All right, let's get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. All right, so this is the message of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So same truth, different people, different audience. Now, again, you have to understand, you can preach the same message to different audiences and get a completely different response. You preach the message of the cross to, to believers, and it's the power of God and salvation. You preach the message of the cross to people who are, are in sin, and they, they think it's foolishness. Now, again, just get the truth. The same message hits different people different way because of their spiritual condition. So their spiritual condition is going to affect their attitude toward a message. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So Paul is taking on the culture. Paul is not adapting to the culture. He's not engaging the culture. He, he's, forgive me, attacking the culture, the culture of philosophy and philosophical debate. Paul just says, listen, I'm going to get in your face here. He said, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of this world? Now, I got news for you, folks. I don't care how wise something looks compared to God. It's foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. All right. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. All right. So the path to God is not wisdom. The path to God is not wisdom. It's not knowledge. Okay. The path to God is through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe the gospel. Now people say, well, how do you get people saved? You don't stand up with worldly wisdom. Well, one of the things I'm constantly challenging young pastors about is would you quit looking up things on Google and start reading your Bible? I mean, please, you, you listen to the world's wisdom. You listen to a sermon from a pastor who quotes one verse, and then after that, it's quoting all of the famous people of the world today. And you know what? Everybody Facebooks the quotes and every. But that is not going to bring a person to God. They're not going to get to know God. They're going to get to know God 
through the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. All right. Jews demand a miracle. He said that's, that's their culture. Greeks seek wisdom. That's their culture. And Paul said, we do neither. We respond to neither. He said, this, this is what they demand. This is what they seek. But this is not the path. But we, he said, this, this is what we do. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. Okay, Jesus, of course, has always been a stumbling block. This was the stumbling block that they stumbled over. We preach Christ crucified, okay? The message of the cross. Comes back up here, the message of the cross. You don't just preach, you know, Jesus was a nice person. Jesus was a good prophet. You preach what he went through for us. The message of the cross is, that's how the punishment of our sins was taken care of. So again, again, sometimes people, they want to tell people all the wonderful stories about who Jesus is. They want to tell people all the beautiful truths about the historical Jesus, but they don't want to talk about the cross. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He said, all right, so these signs are taken care of here. The wisdom is taken care of here, but you find it all in Christ. So let, let's stick on message. Just preach Christ. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were no, noble birth. All right, so he, Paul said, hey, the church was not an elite church. Now, I, I know in this world of homogeneous churches, you know, Paul would say, hey, you know, we, we should get these few people that are elite and put them in a special church. He said, no, no, no. He said, the, the church is hollow, hollow. And the best way to understand church is hollow, hollow. It's all mixed up. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, forgive me. This is one of the beautiful things about God. God takes people that, you know what, don't look like much, and they change the world. Now, some of you are listening to me right now, and you may not look like much, and you may not be super educated. You know what? Neither were the apostles. And in one generation, they changed the world. What can you do? God chose what was low and what was despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Again, God overrules meritocracy. Now, this meritocracy thing, this is a foundation stone of, of Roman Greek culture. Under meritocracy, anybody can become anything. It's very different than the nobility structure or the aristocratic structure. You are born an aristocrat. You are born in the nobility. But, you know, under meritocracy, anybody can become anything if you work hard. It's your life advances by merit. 
And, and these people were very much in the meritocracy. And really, this meritocracy is part of the foundation stone of, of Philippine culture. The people who are poor can become somebody through education and through hard work. But he said, listen, you know, you're going to have to understand meritocracy is, is not relevant to God. God can choose what is low and what is despised in the world. And he said, he can bring those things to nothing that, that are big shots. He said, you're going to have to understand, meritocracy is not how you got saved, and meritocracy is not why God uses you. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He said, you know, under meritocracy, you can boast, I'm a self-made man. But under grace, you cannot boast that you're a self-made man. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. I like that. Christ Jesus is our wisdom. Christ Jesus is our righteousness. Christ Jesus is our sanctification. And Christ Jesus is our redemption. Therefore, it is written, let no one who boasts, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know what? It's all by grace. If you've got anything good in your life, it's because God gave it to you. If you've accomplished anything great in your life, it's because God enabled you. So let's not call attention to ourselves and start writing books and telling everybody, look at the 10 steps I use to become who I am, okay? You know, sometimes, and, and please forgive me, businessmen, but sometimes I get frustrated because sometimes you see a businessman who at one point in his life was a really good person. But then he became arrogant and proud with that money and that prosperity. And then he begins to run around and says, let me tell you what I've accomplished. And you know what? I don't know. want to hear what you've accomplished. Because forgive me, businessman, you didn't accomplish anything. God is the one who did this through you. Get over meritocracy and get into, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm a grace-made man. I'm a grace-made woman. All right, take it down to chapter 2 now, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, did I come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom? <laughs> he said, I did not compete per culture. He said, I did not compete in your cultural way. I didn't come to you. You know, <laughs> Pastor Jamie was talking to me the other day. He said, you know, Pastor... Some preachers in some churches, they're like, everything about them is like a slick PowerPoint presentation. Everything about them is well-crafted and laid out. And he says, you know what? I'm not like that. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that would have been the Apostle Paul. He would look around and go, I'm not a PowerPoint presentation. I'm not a slick marketed presentation. He said, I didn't come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, here is what I would call a learning experience of Paul. Do you remember when Paul was in Athens? He didn't stay very long. And he really didn't accomplish much. I mean, when you think of the fruit of his ministry there, it wasn't much. But this was Paul's first time really in this, this center of philosophy. 
And he started debating with the philosophers in the, the marketplace and then later taking to their, their Agropolis and their, their great debating stage and the greatest minds in Athens stood there to listen to him. And he began to quote their philosophers and things. You notice Paul never did that again? I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me to see, you know, that Paul had to learn just like we had to learn. You never see Paul doing that again. But instead, you see him when he gets to Corinth, which is his next stop, he said, I decided, I made a decision. This incredibly educated man who understood all the Greek philosophies, he, he would have been educated in this as a young man. He said, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, he doesn't come right out and tell us he made a mistake when he was in Athens, but he, he shows us that he learned and he made a different decision when he, he came now to Corinth. Just, you know, a day and a half or so walk from Athens. When he came there, which was the great city in that area, he said, you know what, I'm not going to do what I did in Athens. I'm not going to sit there and debate with these philosophers, and I'm not going to quote their philosophers to them. I've made a decision to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sometimes if you're a young pastor, sometimes you need to put your theology books away. I often tell young pastors, all right, you got your degree. Now put your theology books away and get out your Bible and get to know Jesus. Not what people say about Jesus, but what he says about himself. And then make a decision. When I stand before the people of God, I'm not going to wow them with my lofty speech and my great knowledge and quoting this theologian and that theologian. I'm going to make a decision to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my speech were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power. There you go, miracles. That your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Your faith needs to be focused into something. It cannot sit on top of man's wisdom. Because please forgive me, you're going to hear a better speaker come by who's going to say something different and mix you up. Your faith needs to be in the power of God. Our passage in Proverbs today is Proverbs chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now, chapters 6, 7, and 8, this is dealing with living a clean life and keeping your zipper up, all right? Uh, this is talking about living a holy life sexually. And he says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden women from the adulteress with her smooth words. New Living says to keep them protected from an affair with an immoral woman, from listening to the flattery of a promiscuous woman. Now, Monday we read about how a woman will seduce a man with her smooth words and her coy looks, her, her looking like she's very shy and she's very... She, she's very shy and she's, she's very, you know, just, oh, you know, that excites men. And women have, some women have figured this out. Now, guys, 
the thing that will keep your pants on, the thing that will keep you from getting off with an immoral woman, and you're going to mess up your life. We read that earlier this week. You're, you're going to, a man who goes and sleeps with another man's wife will be destroyed. And a man who, I like the New Living Translation, a man who, who sleeps with a prostitute will come to poverty. I mean, th these are truths that you have to deal with. But the thing that keeps you from it is wisdom. Wisdom and insight. When you have wisdom and insight, you don't fall for the flattery, for the smooth words of an immoral woman. You don't, you don't fall for those coy looks as we read earlier this week. Make insight your intimate friend. Make wisdom your sister. Amen. All right, we'll see you tonight, 7 o'clock, as we get back into the book of 1 Corinthians. We're learning a lot. There's tremendous truth there, and it's been a couple of years since we studied it. Kaya, we started on this, hoping that by the time we finish it, we'll be reopened as a church. That would be a beautiful thing to pray for. We'll see you tonight, 7 o'clock sharp.